Hallelujah. Father, as we have sung today of your holiness, recalling the temple vision of your servant Isaiah so many ages ago, I pray that by the Spirit's use of means today, that the curtain would be drawn back from our spiritual eyes to behold your holiness and your glory and your compassion in the cross of Christ. As we have additionally worshipped you for providing a way of salvation through the sacrificial work of Christ our Lord, I pray that we would see him today crucified for our sins, but also ascended unto glory. I pray that with this revelation of your word proclaimed and reinforced to our souls, clearer in our understanding as we study it this, this day, Lord, that you would reinforce our confession, our strength, our boldness, our confidence in Christ. That we would stand, Lord, not as those who have been pitifully surviving in a world hostile to what we believe, but instead as overcomers, knowing that Christ has defeated the greatest of enemies on Calvary, and that defeat will be manifest across the landscape of history until every last enemy is under his footstool. Lord, I pray this day, as the scriptures are open, that our hearts would be as well, to confess and to understand these truths and to treasure them all the more. And if there are any lost in the hearing of your word proclaimed today, we pray that by these same means, you would bring repentance and faith an acknowledgement of the Lordship of Christ, the holiness of your law, the transgression of the same, and the means of redemption and atonement through Christ alone, whose death paid the punishment for our sins. We praise his holy name, and we thank you, Lord, for your word in this day. In, this, in your name, Jesus, we pray. Bless us this day as we study you revealed in Scripture. In Jesus' name again, amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. What a great privilege and gift and blessing it is to gather in the name of Jesus, to open up the scriptures, to do so boldly and freely by his mercy that he's granted to us today. I'd encourage you to do this with me by turning in your scriptures to Genesis chapter 36, where we will continue to chronicle um, the, I was going to say, the legacy of Jacob. But here we have a shift in our text today, and we get the lineage of Esau primarily featured in this chapter. Let's call this message Birthright Exile, recalling all the way back to the beginning or the early days of Jacob and Esau and some conflict between those two brothers. And you remember a negotiation over a bowl of red lintel pottage where in the heat of the moment Esau sold his birthright for a single bowl of stew, trading the provisions of right now, the immediate promise of a stomach filled for the bigger picture yet future promise of covenant favor to come, which is what the birthright recognized. Interestingly enough, someone might think in the short term that Esau's bargain wasn't all that bad. After all, in our chapter today, we see him rising to some prominence in the land. However, the greater principle of short-term gain, long-term loss, versus short-term sacrifice, long-term gain, is in view. In the end, who has the greater right, who has the greater birthright, the greater promises? Is it Jacob or is it Esau? That's the question at hand. And the answer comes by way of our title and the rest of our message today, Birthright Exile. In reality, the exile of Jacob gives way to a return to the promised land. And so we find among the covenant people that exile is just a temporary condition. However, in the case of Esau and all who belong to the seed of the serpent, so to speak, 
That exile is eternal and forever, horrific, and it's the justice of God vindicated in the punishment of his enemies. That is really in the big picture terms what our text today teaches and much more. Our aim today is to feature the glories of salvation given the alternative, the glories of salvation, to be promised a future habitation in the presence of the Lord given the alternative, birthright, exile, if you will, or the judgments of God falling short of His glory and finding no atonement for our sin. So out of reverence for God's Word today, would you stand with me for a few extra moments today as we read the Word of God and listen as the Word is proclaimed to you. We'll read all of Genesis 36 this morning. And now we begin to read the Holy Scriptures in verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Uh, Ida, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Olabama, the daughter of Ana, Ina, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ida bore Esau, Eliphaz, uh, ba Basimath bore Reuel, and Olabama bore Jerush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Verse 9. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, son of Esau, Reuel, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Ida, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shema, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Olabama, the daughter of Ina, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. Verse 18. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatim, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ida. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's sons, the chiefs, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Olabama, Esau's wife. The chiefs, Jeush, Jalem, Korah. These are the chiefs born of Olabama, the daughter of Ina, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. Verse 20. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Laten, Shobal, Zibion, Ina, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Horai and Hemam. And Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Mahanath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Ai, and Ina. And uh, he is the Ina who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Ina, Dishan, and Olabama, the daughter of Ina. These are the sons of Dishan, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Shevran, and Shiran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhah, 
Zavan and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Latan, Shobal, Zibion, Ina, Dishan, Ezer, Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. We're getting there. Hang in there. Verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigning in Edom, the name of his city being Dinahaba. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah, and Basra reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham, the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of the city being Abath. Hadad died, and Samla of Masra, uh, Masrika, Masrika reigned in his place. Salma died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his place. Baal-Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, and Hador reigned in his place. The name of the city being Pau, and his wife's name was uh, Methetabel, something like that, the daughter of Matrid, the daughter of Mesahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Olabama, Elon, Pinon, Kizan, Temnon, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Eram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So if you were to rate me on pronunciation, I probably failed uh, on a score of, say, 1 to 10. Maybe I give myself about a 5 or a 6. But hopefully I sounded uh, confident enough to fool some of you. Birthright exile. What is the purpose of this chapter? We just read a whole list of many names and a record, kind of a genealogy, sort of a formal uh, accounting of a list of names and families and then their growing influence. Well, today, in this message, we seek to answer that question, the purpose for this chapter. Chapter 36 in Genesis, in part, signals the final and climatic section in the entire book. Believe it or not, this genealogy is like a bookmark or a chapter marker that turns a leaf in the history. Genesis is organized around phrases like, the, like we have at the beginning uh, and the end of this passage here. These are the generations of X. In 36.1, these are the generations of Esau. And then another reference, 37.2, these are the generations of Jacob. As you're studying Genesis, when you see that phrase, you can mark it as a shift of focus in the text. And today, certainly, that is the case. So the last we've seen this phrase before our text today, it was in chapter 25. And here the circumstances are remarkably similar. Turn back with me, if you would, to chapter 25. It is striking the similarity between the accounting of the last days of Abraham and the last days in chapter 35 of Isaac. Note, for instance, in verse 7, Genesis 25, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was, ga and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, where Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled in Beer Lahai Roy. And then notice this, verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael. And then note verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac. Do you see the similarity? It's the same uh, literary devices, if you will. It's the same construction. 
The same pattern appears in the text. This is because, as I said before, chapter markers, if you will, are in view. So, in chapter 35, verse 29, we have Abraham's sons, otherwise no strangers to conflict. That is, Isaac and Ishmael were bitter rivals in many stages of their life. Nevertheless, they reunite at their father's funeral, Abraham, to bury him. So, in our text, Isaac and Ishmael bury Isaac, and we find in verse, chapter 49, in the exact same location. I should say, right before our text. So, this would be 35:27. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Listen to the similarity. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons, Esau and Jacob, again. No strangers to conflict, buried him. And then the next phrase, 36.1, these are the generations of Esau. 37.2, these are the generations of Jacob. Same pattern. So now, a generation later, Jacob and Esau bury Isaac in the same location. Each patriarch funeral occasion is then followed by a record, by a brief mention of the generations of the non-covenant son. There's a record of the generations of Ishmael, chapter 25, and then chapter 26 is a record of the generations of Esau. So each of these is then followed, while the line of Esau is charted in our chapter today, each of these documents is then followed by a lengthy biography of the covenant son line. And that's the through line, the theme of Genesis. Following the lineage, the providence, the purposes, the prophecy, the promises of God in preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And these big picture, that's the thread that's woven through the historical record of Genesis. And our text today, chapter 36, by contrast primarily, I submit, sets the stage for us, us to appreciate this in significant ways. So his sons will remain, or I should say, Isaac and Jacob's years are detailed from chapter 25 through 35, while Jacob's uh, sons will remain the focus of chapters 37 all the way through 50. So even though our chapter seemed long today, 14 chapters are given to the covenant son line. And there will be, in the rest of Genesis, special attention on one particular son of Jacob, namely Joseph. And the account of his plight and his exaltation to authority in Egypt, and how God used his life circumstances to bring salvation to his family, if you will, this will continue to chart by glorious example and by pattern God's purposes in salvation all the way to the close of the book of Genesis in chapter 50. So 37.2 opens with, These are the generations of Jacob, and then continues illuminating this legacy of redemption, hope, and salvation for the remaining 14 chapters of Moses' first book of record, namely Genesis. So why this chapter following Esau? Several purposes are apparent in the text, including the following. We're just covering some background, some big picture for you, which is part of the purpose of our text today. So what's the purpose of Genesis 36? Well, in part, it would be fulfillment of prophecy and pr promise and prophecy to Isaac and Rebekah themselves. Do you remember what Esau's mother received from the Lord? By way of his word, uh, back in chapter 27. Turn back with me there for a moment, if you will. 
Or maybe that's not quite the right chapter I'm looking for. I'll find it. It's chapter 25. In chapter 25, verse 23, the Lord said to her, that is to Rebekah, quote, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the, the younger. That long list of names that we went over painstakingly in chapter 36 is, documents the strength of Esau in his lineage. Esau, by political power, by material possessions, by influence in the land, by strength and might of his right hand, so to speak, as a hunter and as a leader of man in the short term, is definitely stronger. Yet there is this promise. Even though two nations are in you, they will be set at odds with one another, and against all odds, the older shall serve the younger. In the end, when the balances of God's purposes are finally shake out and are finally measured, the true hope and true authority and true glory, true promises, prophecy, and salvation will come through the unlikely son. So this was a promise that was given to Esau's mother, Rebekah, told to her by the Lord himself all the way back in chapter 25. Furthermore, this prophecy... There was more prophecy as well. And this prophecy was clearly, is clearly confirmed in chapter 26. As growing power in the land of Seir and Canaan is ascribed to Esau. Isaac had given a patriarchal pronouncement over Esau as well in chapter 27. Indicating, we won't go there, but 39 and 40 tell us uh, by Jacob's own mouth that Esau will be something of a birthright exile. He will, that Esau, or, or I'm sorry, Jacob excuse me, Isaac, indicates that his son Esau will have a wilderness habitation and will live by the sword. And we see this kind of legacy in our record today. Isaac's words also prophesy the legacy of Esau that is confirmed in 36, marked by these kinds of details. Additionally, covenant confirmation and renewal at Bethel in chapter 35 had reminded Jacob of promises that had been passed down for three generations. So if we go to 35, in verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And he says, as he continues, verse 11, God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. This was a promise going all the way back to Abraham. A nation and a company of nations will come from your own body. And indeed, part of that company of nations is seen in the legacy of Esau. There are kings that are listed in our chapter today. God is fulfilling his word, and it's recorded by Moses in painstaking detail as the history of God's purposes is written for us to appreciate even today. So this promise was certainly proven true in Esau's lineage, as it would be in Jacob's lineage as well. But herein, a contrast is to be drawn. The kinds of nations, national identity, and legacy that accompanied Esau's family line versus the kinds of kings and legacy and influence that would follow Jacob's family line set up quite the contrast. There's a big difference between the Edomite kings and Joseph, who would eventually be second in command in Egypt. And so the stage is set in the book of Genesis to feature the glories of salvation, as we've said, given the alternative and given the contrast of man's means of salvation and what he values 
independent of the Spirit changing his heart. So this is a primary purpose that we will look at today. That is to illustrate by contrast the glories of salvation. The difference between the kings of Esau and the kings that would come from Jacob, so to speak. This is the focus of our message today, and I submit a primary reason for the record of Genesis 36. Genesis 36 gives us legacy markers for Esau. So here's a heading. Esau's legacy is marked by the following. Number one, pagan intermarriage. By the way, these are all a bad thing until we get to number four. Esau's legacy is marked by pagan intermarriage. Number two, by covenant estrangement. There's distance between him and the covenant hope that is vested in Jacob and those who camp with him. Number three, growing political power. Esau's legacy is marked by growing might in the land. And then number four, Esau's legacy is marked by contrast with Jacob and Jacob's sons. So let us consider our text today accordingly. Esau's legacy marked by, first of all, pagan intermarriage. 36.1, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. So kids, remind us, what does Edom mean? Edom is Esau's nickname. Do you guys remember what it means? Hairy, close, close. Think of like the color of the hair that he's red. That's right. So Esau has a nickname. It's red. And he's nicknamed this for two reasons. Can you guys tell me what they are? The theme of red appears at least twice in Esau's history. Do you guys know? When he was born, he was super hairy and red. And also, what else was red? The red porridge. That is correct. So these things are signal moments in the legacy of Esau. He was born a hairy red guy, a baby, which indicates natural strength. But he was also tempted by a bowl of red porridge where he traded the long-term promise of covenant hope for the short-term game of appetite and meal, full belly. So this is what marks Esau's legacy. And it's partly represented in his nickname, if you will, Edom. And this is referenced multiple times in this chapter. Don't forget this guy is red, red for, called red, red for a reason. Because though he has natural strength, he's also given over to the desires of the flesh. This is a guy who has organized his life and has obtained his power and built his legacy on satisfying the appetites of the moment and exercising his will to power and dominance over others. And there is a difference between that and the hope vested in the true covenant son. These guys are twins but they couldn't be more different. Verse 2, Esau took his wives, that is Jacob and Esau are twins, took his wives from the Canaanites. Okay, kids, good idea or bad idea? Marrying the Canaanites. Shout it out. Good idea or bad idea? Bad idea. Wives from the Canaanites. So this is pagan intermarriage. Ida, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Olabama, the daughter of Ina, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. So that now we have a record right in from the beginning of Esau's recorded legacy of intermarriage with pagan, idol-worshiping peoples. We contrast this marker with preservation of the covenant and seed of the Messiah, the seed of the woman, if you will. So this is this pagan intermarriage. This is seed of the serpent values. This is seed of the serpent kinds of decisions. And when I say this, I want to qualify. Marriage, on pagan terms, represents covenant corruption. This is easy for us to understand, although it's sometimes complicated by ideas in the modern era of, you know, 
whatever discrimination and stuff like that. We're not talking interracial marriage per se here. What we are talking about is the grounds and the inspiration and the motivating values of a marriage relationship. I think we can understand from the New Testament teaching, from God's original intent in marriage, that he has designed that one man and one woman leave their father and mother and the two become one flesh. And this is an institution that he has created to bring glory to his name. So let me ask you this. If you choose to become one flesh with an idol worshiper who has not repented and turned from his or her sin, what are you doing? Well, you're mixing your ideas, religious notions, values, culture, history, family line, and so forth with an unbeliever, and it is to compromise and corrupt the covenant. Even Paul says in the New Testament, uh, you can marry, but marry in the Lord. It's because the most important relationships need to be in order with God's biblical intent. The most important relationship of all is our relationship to the Lord. Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior? Has He changed your heart and are you born again? If so, then a suitable bride or a suitable husband for you, young person, moving towards marriage, is one who has also experienced that absolutely formative moment in their life. So we can understand the application. Esau, though, he was not convicted in this way. Instead, he sought for his wives among the Canaanites. Contrast this to Jacob's household. As messed up as Jacob's house could sometimes be, nevertheless, there was evidence of repentance and true worship in his home. 35.2, Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress." and has been with me wherever I have gone. Verse 4, So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. This is a message that it would be great if it would be broadcast beyond Jacob's own household, even to the household of Esau. And if Esau were to repent and to link his future fortunes and legacy to the true covenant and hope of salvation, he could do the same. He could place his hope in God's word and promises instead of moving away from his brother to go be a king and seer or influential there. He could say to his household, following the example of Jacob, put your gods away, Canaanite wives. From this day forward, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Repent, bring me your idols. We're going to Bethel, the place where the Lord has visited my brother. And we will seek God's favor there. We'll repent of our sins and we'll praise ourselves at his grace and mercy. This was not Esau's legacy, tragically. Instead, he embraced the covenant corruption evidenced by the compromise of pagan marriages. And so we see this marking his lineage moving forward. Further evidence of this is that the Canaanites were bad news. Genesis 15, 16, there had been, through the patriarchal admonition, there had been direct instruction in this regard. Isaac had said this, uh, this is uh, chapter 15, verse 16. Oh, excuse me. That's a wrong reference. Um, Genesis 28, 6 through 9. In this record, we have these instructions. Um, and, Esau, uh, blessed, and Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to, wait, to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. So you see here, the patriarchal word of authority, the message of God through this lineage of his faithfulness unto, uh, um, 
unto the instructions to the next generation, or for the instructions to the next generation is this. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that, so Esau sees this, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and God to Pat and Aram. So then Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father. Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives that he has, Mehalath, the daughter of Ishmael, and so forth. Now Esau does not get it. We understand that he has been disobedient to these covenant terms as we pick up on his story and legacy in our passage today. In spite of what his father has said, to guard the terms of covenant, to marry within the blessing of the Lord. Do not marry unbelievers, idolaters, Canaanite and pagan peoples, for instance. Instead of this, Esau, 37-2, took wives from the Canaanites. So we see here that this was a kind of disobedience that marked the legacy of Esau. If you were to go to Hebrews 13, 16-17, really the principal spiritual truth uh, of what this meant for Esau as a lesson for all of us is recorded there. Don't be unholy or sexually immoral like Esau who traded his birthright for a bowl of soup. And you see what the author of Hebrews is doing there? The big picture promises that take faith to believe but are worth sacrificing in the short term for, that wasn't the way Esau was wired. Instead, he lived his life by the appetites of the moment. Things like a bowl of porridge in exchange for the favor of the covenant line. Things like sexual immorality in exchange for purity and fidelity, looking forward to marriage. Honoring the clear terms of God's covenant-specific arrangement and boundaries for his holy institutions like marriage and otherwise. So the legacy of Esau is living by appetites. It's marked by pagan intermarriage, which is a picture or signal of covenant corruption and compromise. Let us not be like Esau, as the scriptures give, uh, give example here, but instead, let us look for a Messiah through the line of Jacob and, and his subsequent sons, who will be basically the opposite and hold out hope for us. Point number two, Esau's legacy is marked by covenant estrangement. And kids, listen closely to this. I'm going to ask you a question. The question is going to be, like, what, can you think of two other people who had to uh, move away from each other because their flocks were so great? All right. So 37, 36, verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land far away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. And the land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Uh, Esau is Edom, that parenthesis again. So kids, can you remind us of two other people in Genesis? Their flocks became too, so great that they had to part ways. They had to move away from each other. Anyone remember? Cain and Abel, good guess, not exactly, no. I'll give you a hint. It would be Abraham and... Lot. Yeah, someone said Lot, I heard it. That's correct. Abraham and his nephew. Almost identical circumstances. How did that work out for Lot? Not so great. So Genesis 13, 1 through 13, there's some tension between Abraham and his nephew because the flocks, uh, it doesn't seem that there's enough resources to sustain them all and so forth. So a decision has to be made. Perhaps there's infighting among the shepherd servants of the two men. And so Lot sets his eyes. He lifts up his eyes to the cities of the plains. Two real wicked ones among them, Sodom and Gomorrah. So he takes up camp. He moves all his servants' flocks and holdings over to, 
you know, the outskirts of Sodom and Gomorrah. But when we find him later in the text, this the decision has turned out, has proven to be something of a covenant estrangement. He has left the covering, the blessing of camping next to Abraham, who is God's favored covenant son, if you will, provisionally, and now he's dwelling near a city that is depraved and worthy of the judgment of God. And Lot is caught up in this drama, and pretty soon God sends rescue angels to bring him and his family out of the city. But that moral corruption has been really cancerous. It's affected his family. The Lot is saved as through fire, not so much the rest of his family. We see his wife turned into a pillar of salt and his daughters embracing uh, uh, sexual values of the surrounding regions, coercing him with alcohol to commit incest and so forth. It's a real tragic story. And it's very similar to this one. And I submit there's a reason for that. This moving away, this separation, is more than a practical decision where flocks should be watered. It represents covenant estrangement. Like Lot, that separation from Abraham and the promise of the covenant that he bore. He was the oral testator, if you will. He was the one who was given the word of God. God had routinely, regularly visited Abraham and given him his word. Who, where do you fit in this story? You know, I sometimes ask myself this question. I've told you this before. My favorite character in this whole patriarch drama is a guy named Eleazar, which I take to be the servant in Genesis 24. He's the guy, probably not even born of Abraham's seed, but a servant who is very faithful. And what he wants to do is be in good graces of his master. And he recognizes God's favor on his, on his master. And he does not re, uh, resent this arrangement, master-servant. No, not at all. In fact, he prays that he could be faithful to his master. And he knows his master's Lord by virtue of this intermediary, if you will. Abraham is a mediator, so to speak, for Yahweh, the one true God, for his, what would otherwise be, you know, servant from another land, apparently, Eleazar. A beautiful picture of salvation. So what is Eleazar's legacy, or what is his decision? How does that contrast to Esau? He wanted to be as close as possible and submit to God's means of revealing himself and showing himself and blessing himself. And so, come what may, whatever it took, better to be a servant of Abraham than for the promise of short-term provision and better accommodations of my flocks. Move away from the covenant covering that was vested in Abraham, then in Isaac, then in Jacob. What does Esau stand to lose by distancing himself from the covenant covering that accompanied the household of Jacob? He stands to lose the Emmanuel promise. I will be with you, never leave you, or forsake you. So if you were in Jacob's camp, you had that promise to assure you safe passage on the way. Also, Jacob, his eyes are opened at times to see an angelic encampment, the hosts of heaven guarding him on his way back to the promised land. Esau, no such assurance. Moving away from Jacob, what else did he stand to lose? Face to face, he stood to lose the testimony of face to face divine encounters with Almighty God. Penuel means face to face or face of God. That was where Jacob came in close contact with God himself. And also Jacob's revelatory dreams and his messianic lineage and divine condescension in chapter 35 where God himself comes down, visits his son. Oh, to be close uh, to the circumstances like this, to recognize the favor of the Lord. 
and to be drawn to, not separated from, that covering of God's favor. Well, Esau's legacy was marked not by seeking favor through the covenant son, but instead, like Lot for a time, distanced from the covering covenant estrangement. What would motivate you to make such a decision? Well, perhaps the priority of possessions governed Esau's decision. It was more important to him that his, th- that his flocks would thrive and he would live close to the visitation of the Lord through his appointed servant, Jacob, who is also his brother. Matthew 19, 31-32, the rich young ruler has a tacit interest in the kingdom of God. and He recognizes that Jesus has some authority. So he asks him, what must I do to enter the kingdom? And what we find illustrated in his testimony, similar to that, let's say, of Esau, is he placed too much of a priority on possessions. Jesus says, whatever it may cost you by way of flocks or holdings, follow me. The man went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. Where do we stand on the possession test? If God is asking us in any way to sacrifice something of the promises of prosperity that the world has in order that we might be close to him among his people and counted um, in the camp and the covering of the graces of the Lord and his means, I'm telling you, it is worth the price. Don't be like Esau who trades the promises of the covenant for a meal in the short term or for thriving flocks in the course of those years or for political influence and so forth. Instead, recognize that these things ultimately are nothing compared to the glory and the promises of being found in the covenant in right relationship with the Lord. And for us, of course, this is fully manifest in our salvation experience. We have met the son of Jacob in Jesus Christ. And we should be willing, as Jesus has said, to take up our cross, no matter the cost, and follow him. Because the glories of salvation are worth whatever difficulty, persecution, and otherwise in the short term. Number three, Esau's legacy is marked by growing political influence and power. We won't go back over these verses, but the remainder of the chapter, I submit, is given in categories that show his growing influence in the land. It's quite significant. In verses 9 through 14, there's a record of five sons and ten grandsons. Just one dude and his family. But pretty soon they begin to take over. This tribe grows into a multiple tribes. Verses 15 through 19 record 14 tribes and 14 chiefs, all in the lineage, all in the genealogy of Esau. Now, on the other side of the coin, or in contrast there, they're in a land where the aboriginal or original uh, members are the Seirites, or um, here these are the sons of Seir, the Horite, I should say, the inhabitants of the land. Here there's just five original chiefs, and their influence right, uh, given in the record in verses 20 through 30. But then we see more influence still in 31 through 39 as the Edomite kings emerge with more influence and more power in the region. Kings are indeed arising from the line of Esau. And then the chapter closes with 11 more chiefs listed, verse 40. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clan, their dwelling places, by their names, the chiefs of Timnah, Alvo, Jetheth, and so forth. There is quite a contrast here. Esau has taken firm foothold in the land. His ability to command men and to take dominion and to uh, exercise his influence is quite profound. 
it's not long and not too many generations where he's got, he can boast 14 tribes that overpower and overrule by their kingship this whole region that will come to be known as Edom. Syrites or Horvites notwithstanding. And then chapter 37 opens. And here we have a record pretty soon of a famine that strikes the land. Jacob and his 12 bread-begging sons must go to a superior power and be fed under, of course, the supervision of Joseph, but they don't know that. So you see in the short term, boy, it seems that Jacob has drawn the short straw. And for years and years there, Esau could boast, really, I'm the superior brother by any objective measure. But in the end, we find, if you will, Jacob and his lineage gets the last laugh. Growing political influence and power mark the legacy of Esau. He goes from sons, grandsons, tribes, chiefs, overcoming inferior chiefs, to Edomite rule dominating the whole region. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? The bowl of soup trade for this promise of political power, was it worth it? Well, uh, perhaps Esau thought, yes, it was. And what a horrible curse for his own soul. As he relaxed in the authority and glory that he enjoyed in the land, what he was blind to is a testimony of the covenant pointing out his own sin, saying, how dare you trade the promises of God, walk by might and not by faith, and trade the glory of political rule for the promise of a coming Messiah. You are not the Messiah. Stop acting like one. You are not equipped to rule this region. Stop presuming authority that God himself owns. Bow humbly before him. Seek to be in right standing with him. Leave this covenant estrangement. Go back to your brother. Ask him about Yahweh revealed to the covenant son that you might find hope in the coming Messiah. So far as we know, Esau never did this. Thus, his legacy was marked by this pagan intermarriage, covenant compromise, covenant estrangement, a growing distance between him and the revelation of Almighty, the hope of salvation in the future, and then justifying his position all on the basis of short-term gain, growing political influence and power. He ruled the place and his children, but in the end, a greater ruler would arise. Now, finally, Esau's legacy is marked by contrast, and this is where the chapter shifts. Notice in 37.1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. They didn't enjoy this political power. He was simply dwelling as a sojourner, one who travels through, a tent dweller as Jacob always was in the land of Canaan. And then we have this key phrase, these are the generations of Jacob. It doesn't open with a strong list of dominant chiefs in the region. Instead, it opens up with a record of a 17-year-old shepherd boy that all his brothers hate. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy. With the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. And then the story continues. Quite the contrast. We're about to follow the lineage of a 17-year-old shepherd boy who's at odds with his brothers and in some ways his entire family. But there's something special about him. What is it? Well, one of the first marks of the anointing and the special favor that Joseph enjoys is right here in our text as we continue to read in verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream. That should send chills up our spine. Why? Because the word of God is being preserved 
and revealed to his servants. Do you remember how significant dreams were in revealing the plans and purposes of God through his father? It was Jacob's glorious dream in Bethel that promised a bridge would be built from heaven to earth. And it was Jesus who would later fulfill that picture when he tells his servant Nathan, from now on, you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That's how important these dream revelations were to the lineage of Jacob. And the dreams are continuing. What does that mean? The favor of Yahweh is continuing with the covenant line. And somehow, through this unlikely 17-year-old shepherd boy that everyone is annoyed with, the promise of salvation would continue. How is that possible? And someone came and told Esau, you know what? You should really talk to the 17-year-old shepherd boy. He would scoff. What, me? Look at me. Look at my sons. Look at their holdings. We control Seir. We are the great Edomite kings. Who is this 17-year-old shepherd boy? Well, it just so happens that God had vested in this unlikely vessel the hope for the salvation for the family to come. And by God's providence and sovereign hand alone, he would arise to be a king as well, if you will, second in command of Egypt, and would provide hope for the starving peoples back in Canaan. This is the way the Lord works, is it not? In contrast uh, with Esau, the legacy of Jacob is that the greater portion of Scripture is dedicated to following the legacy of the unlikely son, and that prophecy of the weaker shall be in charge, ultimately, of the stronger, and the younger, if you, were, if you will, shall be in charge of the older, is coming true. And it's signaling, signaling a pattern in salvation that we better recognize, and the people then needed to recognize as well. A Messiah is coming, but he's not the kind that you expect. He will not save by the mere arm strength of human ingenuity. No, he will be a suffering servant who will take upon himself the sins of the people, and through his mighty work of humility on the cross, he will overcome the greatest of all enemies. In closing, turn with me to Isaiah 53. There's just types and shadows that we see in our text today. There's just hints and allusions Yet they become clear and they are boldly proclaimed through the testimony and course of Scripture. The prophets clarify and articulate, solidify uh, these, the message of hope that Joseph represents, the line of Jacob represents, and Jesus fulfills in such powerful ways. Yes, it would require faith to believe that God had purposes in this unlikely scenario. But this is what was on the horizon. The prophet writes, Who has believed what they heard from us? Now let me pause there. Esau believed? Likely no. Why? Because he lived his life according to his appetites and not the promise of God's word. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Pause there. Well, not to those who place their hope and strength in the arm of man. No, their eyes remain closed and blind to the coming Messiah. We continue verse 2. For he, now this is speaking of the Messiah, the son of Jacob, one like Joseph, if you will. Verse 2, he grew up before him like a young plant. Like a root out of the dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Let me pause there. And like Joseph, we could say, verse 3, now the word continues, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid, hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And then, of course, the scriptures go on to say in this famous messianic prophecy passage 
that by his wounds, by the striking of his bloody back, and by the wounds pressed upon his brow, by that crown of thorns, by these iniquities, our transgressions were paid for. By his stripes we were healed. When the king of kings stooped low to take on flesh, to humble himself, to take on the form of a servant, Philippians 2, he fulfilled that picture of Joseph and the legacy of Jacob, an unlikely son, not the hope that mankind in his sin looks for, not the hope that mankind in his humanist endeavor places faith in, but instead the one who would conquer the greatest enemy of all, our sin, death, and the grave by his victorious work on Calvary. Jacob's legacy is marked by in the short term what appears to be the weaker son, but that weaker son will arise to rule. And so Jesus arose from the pit, if you will, of his own redemptive work to ascend before the Father and receive as his inheritance the crown rights to every kingdom of this earth, Daniel 7. Just like Joseph arose out of that pit. Of course, we're prefiguring a lot of future messages, Lord willing, from Genesis as we give this brief overview. Suffice it to say for now, Esau's legacy is marked by covenant compromise, by a pagan intermarriage, covenant estrangement. Why? Because he placed a priority on possessions rather than the promises of God. And this was all worth it to him because of growing political power, short-term gain, influence. But in the end, this all serves to contrast that the greater blessing, the greater promise, the greater hope is in the Word of God. The revelation that we hold in our hands as we read these scriptures and by His grace tie these themes together. And our hope is in the Joseph to come, the Jacob to come, the weaker son, if you will, who is exalted to be Lord of all and King of kings, never to be challenged in his authority or power ever again, and in his humility, uh, work the greatest act of triumph in all of history, defeating our sin on Calvary. So this is the message I submit of Genesis 36, ultimately speaking. It sets up the contrast. Again, we feature the glories of salvation today, given the alternative. And isn't it amazing to draw from this hope, even for our circumstances today? With this, I'd like to close with a quote. Here's a man who can say it better than me. This is Matthew Henry. Man, I love this quote. Listen to it. Take, away from, take from this quote an application for our text today. I think it's a great one. Matthew Henry writes, commenting on Genesis 36, quote, We may suppose it a trial to the faith of God's Israel to hear of the pomp and power of the kings of Edom. While they were bond slaves in Egypt, but those that look for great things from God must be content to wait for them. They pause. So it would be discouraging in the short term if you were one of Jacob's sons, you know, in exile in Egypt, to hear tell of the great Edomite kings. Did Esau have the last laugh? This is what would take faith to answer no at that time. God's time, Matthew Henry continues, is the best time. Mount Seir is called the land of their possession. Canaan was at this time only the land of promise. So Esau possessed Canaan, uh, possessed Seir, yet Canaan was just, on, just a promise for the people at that, for so many years. Seir was in the possession of the Edomites. Matthew Henry continues, The children of this world have their all in hand and nothing in hope. Do you get that? The children of this world, those who bear the legacy of Esau, they have all in hand and nothing in hope. They've taken their birthright now. 
They've eaten the porridge of what this world has to offer. I'll take my inheritance right now, thank you. But if it comes to the sacrifice of covenant hope, it will prove to me the most foolish bargain of all. Luke 16, 25 is cited by Matthew Henry, which says this, parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you know, from beyond uh, the next life. Quote, but Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he, has, he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. There would come a day when Jacob, in spite of his sins, covered under the blood of his future son, would be welcomed into Abraham's bosom as it were. The good graces, after he died, gathered like his fathers before him into the care of the Lord. Yet Esau, far in repentance, not so, an eternity of anguish. Matthew Henry continues, While the children of God have all their hope, I have, all, have their all in hope and next to nothing in hand. But all things considered, it is beyond compare, better to have Canaan in promise than Mount Seir in possession. Better to have Canaan in promise than Mount Seir in possession. The children of this world have all, they're all in hand and nothing in hope. Well, if, if you know Jesus today, well, the children of God have, all, have their all in hope, glories of the next life, and next to nothing in hand. I'm sure you felt that way. What dominance and authority, you know, do we share right now? There isn't exactly a global enterprise, of a, and, and neither is our nation right at this particular moment organized under the unified, powerful, sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. It ought to be, but that's a yet future reality. As we labor toward that end, if it takes years and years and even centuries of patience, remember, there are people who enjoy power and authority and promises and possession right now. They have it all in hand, but they have nothing to hope for in the future. But for us, if we are content that Jesus Christ is Lord, He will have the last laugh, and our hope is in eternity, and we place our faith and our confidence in that. We may have little in hand, but we have everything to look forward to. Praise His holy name. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank You for this message from Your Scriptures that becomes so clear to us in Christ. I pray as Your Word has gone forth today that it would bring a call to repentance to the lost. If we, in the hearing of this message, have been clinging to the promises of the world at the expense of the glories of the Gospel, I pray that we would turn from our sin and turn to Christ. Lord, if we are tempted in the flesh and the day-to-day -day promises of the world to compromise the covenant, I pray that you would bring conviction to us as well as we, your people, seek to be sanctified and walk in obedience to your word. Finally, Lord, would you encourage and equip your people that though our hope remains in many cases yet on the horizon, it is nevertheless worth any price that we must endure between now and then because Jesus has already taken the ultimate price and it is a joy and a pleasure to serve him knowing and we too will be resurrected on the final day to rule and reign with him. Encourage us with this message of hope this day so we might be more faithful to the task at hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.